Welcome back, everyone. This is Jose Nino here with another episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I'm joined again with George Samueli, and he's been a frequent contributor to El Nino Speaks. And you can check out his previous appearances on the show notes below, which I will attach at the end of this episode. So, George, how are things going with you? They're very good. How are you, Jose? Oh, it's been pretty hectic. Lots of all the stuff going on at the international and domestic level. I've had plenty of work, both in terms of writing and podcast content to drop, but can't complain. More views and more money. (laughs) So, yeah, let's um, uh, talk about the new geopolitical flavor of the week, Israel-Hamas conflict. What were your initial thoughts on the October 7th attack? Were were you surprised by this? Or do you think this was like already like baking the cake in terms of like ongoing conflict between Israel and the Palestinians? Well, I was obviously surprised by the immediate um, circumstances because like everybody else, I had um, essentially taken for granted that nothing much was going to happen that um, the Palestinians feel that they pretty much tried everything and that basically they're going to give up the ghost. I mean, there's just simply a very little point in in, in trying to fight back against a much stronger uh, foe, namely Israel. So when it exploded the way it did, then, you know, in a way, it was obvious that, yeah, the, the Palestinian issue... Is simply not going to go away. It, it's going to be with us because ultimately Israel has not complied with the, the commitments it had made in order to become a member of the United Nations. It has refused repeatedly to uh, comply with innumerable UN Security Council resolutions. And uh, it has not complied with the commitments it made, especially during the Oslo process. And it has just simply gone about its business, expropriating land, ignoring the problem of the Palestinians, and um, assuming that essentially it's got a free pass because it has the United States, the greatest power in the world, in its corner, and that it can get away with anything because the Americans will let them get away with anything. So when it exploded, I thought, well, clearly, you know, yet again, the Palestinians have made their presence felt, and uh, it was inevitable, and it was naive of us, including myself, to assume that the problem had just simply gone away once and for all. So, yes, I, too, was caught flat-footed here because I was of the opinion, because of the Abraham Accords, that the Trump administration was able to shepherd that Arab states were going to just completely ditch the Palestinian issue one by one. And that Israel's like strategy of like that graduate strategy of like mowing the grass was going to win out in the long term without with like a few forms of Palestinian resistance here and there. But this one was pretty big, not only in terms of the scale of the attack, but also the international reaction. To me, I think the biggest effect um, non-public policy-wise, is I see that there's a total paradigm shift now where people are just not vi- as vigorously defending Israel as before, and you're just seeing alternative media exposing 
this punitive military campaign that Israel is launching against uh, the Gaza Strip. And it's exposing it for what it actually like is. It's not about taking out Hamas. It really does look like an ethnic cleansing campaign that's happening before our eyes. Yes, yeah, so that uh, unquestionably so. And um, I agree with you that Israel really is now generating the kind of opposition worldwide, including even in the United States, that it has never generated before. And I think that's a serious problem for Israel because in the past, it's always relied upon uh, the United States and um, it's always uh, relied on essentially intimidating all opponents with the cries of anti-Semitism and so on. Um, This time it isn't working. And the scale of these uh, protests in Europe and even in the United States and the response to um, Israeli apologia um, have been quite startling. I mean, you know, Israel is now releasing these videos of what it has found in these uh, tunnels in the hospitals, and people are openly jeering at these uh, videos, and the people are openly ridiculing Israeli claims that they have to bomb hospitals in order to get at Hamas, they have to kill these civilians in order to destroy Hamas, and no one's buying Israeli explanation. So whenever this comes to an end, Israel's going to have a real problem, because suddenly it has now generated a really intense hostility towards it in the few parts of the world that have generally been supportive of Israel. Yeah, I mean, most of the rest of the world has never been particularly sympathetic to uh, Israel, but it's always been able to uh, count on the United States. It's been also been able to count on much of Europe. Now that's no longer going to be the case. And I think that's a very serious long-term uh, problem for Israel. Yes, I think too, I really didn't also appreciate a lot of like the domestic developments in Israel because I like to look at these things from uh, a broader perspective due to the fact that what we've seen in the last 50 years since like the death of like labor Zionism and even I'd argue the death of like kind of like Theodore, like Herschel's like more like liberal Zionist vision You've seen, um, I'd say like you've seen like basically the works of Zeev uh, Japatinsky defeat Theodore Herschel. And then now it's starting to take a more like a streak of Mayer Kahan in the sense that I think that Netanyahu's pact with the devil in this case with like these really hard right Israeli settler parties have put like Israel on like a, uh, on like a point of no return where I just think that when you factor in these judicial reforms and the ascendance of like the Israeli hard right and just the demographics of Israel, where it is becoming like a lot more ultra orthodox Mizrahim or just really like hard right in general, I think any facade of Israel being like a quote unquote liberal democracy is like, it's being completely unraveled. This is just unraveling before our eyes and um, talking to some Israelis too, they told me that since the emergence of this hard right, there's been like very like cronyistic like types of like hiring practices across the government from like the security services, the military, and other aspects of the Israeli bureaucracy. 
that I think has actually like um created a much more like a competent like Israeli state as evidenced by the October 7th attack, like just an absolute like security failure there. And when you look at that and a Middle East that has like a resurgent Turkey, Iran, and just like this new geopolitical environment where Russia and China will have a stronger say in affairs. It almost seems like altogether Israel's going to have a rough path to its centennial in 2048. And I'm not to mention like the ultra orthodox creating problems in terms of like public treasure and their ability to defend um, Israel. It seems that I think that there's going to be like perpetual instability for Israel in the decades to come. I think so. And the problem that Israel is uh, facing is that um, it's the basis of its survival is um, the, its dependence on uh, the United States, that uh, the United States will always have its back, that the United States will always um, uh, support it diplomatically, that the United States will always um, provide it with money, it will provide it with arms, uh, provide it with intelligence, and whatever anyone else tries to do, uh, the United States will always be there to support it. And that's really been you know, the, uh, the Israeli uh, strategy for decades. But that is a source of vulnerability because, ultimately, suppose the United States changes its mind. I mean, admittedly, it's unlikely, but it's not impossible. There's always a, there's always a chance that uh, public opinion in the United States will change. We're seeing it to a certain extent at the moment. 97% of Congress votes against a ceasefire, while according to uh, opinion polls in the United States, something like 60% of the public is in favor of a ceasefire. That's a huge disjunction between you know, what the political elites are thinking and what the public is thinking. And we're supposing it changes. Supposing uh, the United States you know, says, well, look, we're getting tired of this. What are we getting out of this? And of course, that, that's a question that, uh, that very few uh, members of the U.S. policymaking elite yep. ever asked. What do we actually get out of this uh, alliance? We can see what Israel gets out of it, but we, the United States, don't get very much out of it. And so somebody comes along and asks that very question, then that's a very dangerous position for Israel to be in, because then the United States will suddenly join the international uh, community and say, no, this is enough. You have to sit down at a conference and work out a two-state solution, and you're going to have to bite the bullet and make serious sacrifices because we're not going to underwrite you any longer. That's always been Israel's nightmare that, that that day could come, but they've always been able to push it aside and say, well, what the hell? You know, It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But if we look at the polls today, you know, people in there uh, or under 30, there is overwhelming opposition to what Israel is doing. That's a serious problem even for the Democrats. I mean, Biden's looking at, at the poll numbers. Oh, and, and, isn't he pummeled? He's getting pummeled at the polls. Exactly. And, and he's particularly getting pummeled among young people. And where Democrats have actually been doing rather well in, uh, in, in the last few decades. Real quick, did you see that I'm not sure if it was like a 
official recording, but it was like a leak of like Jonathan Greenblatt just like expressing his absolute like horror at like the demographics of how young people are just not buying into like pro-Israeli narratives. I didn't see that, but I've I've seen a, a lot of his ridiculous and outrageous performances issuing all manner of threats against universities. You know that universities had better crack down on free speech, on student um, demonstrations, on student organizations. Otherwise, the the ADL will lean on donors, and more than that, the ADL will uh, pressure the government to cancel contracts with universities. And universities rely on government contracts. I mean, that's where they make so much money, you know, whether it's the Pentagon, the Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundations, the Centers for Disease Control. That's how universities survive. And if the ADL manages to lean on the government to uh, cancel universities, that's a serious issue. And so again, you know, when, when Greenblatt comes along and starts issuing these threats, may look good uh, to some, but to many, I mean, this is just horrific that you're just uh, essentially practicing extortion, which is, of course, what the ADL has been doing for years. Oh, yeah. They've gotten, like, unhinged. Yeah, I wrote about this at Big League Politics about the Jonathan Greenblatt. I will link it to my show notes as well. But this is what it's from, like, a conference call. But I do believe this. It, his opinion is probably held by a, a number of, like, pro-Zionist bigwigs in the U.S. <laughs> because... The numbers like, just don't lie. I mean, <laughs> just yesterday when I was doing some late night work at a coffee shop, like I just go to the bathroom and it'd just be like totally graffiti with like pro-Palestinian like uh, talking points. And then there was like one like pro-Israel, Israel like scribbling there that's just like surrounded by like 50 other pro-Palestinian slogans and whatnot. Like, yeah, people like the, the youth are not down to this agenda any longer. Yep. And, um, and this cry of anti-Semitism, again, it works in the media, and it's, a, it's quite a useful way of changing the subject, and then, you know, that, that's been effective, but it's limited usefulness. You know, apparently, with, with many, particularly young people, all they see, dead children. They just see total destruction, destruction of people's homes, um, you know, people fleeing uh, for their lives. And this whole argument that uh, any, that drawing attention to that is somehow anti-Semitic, it's just not going anywhere. It's not, it's not a plausible argument. I mean, if Israel were at least to show that we have achieved something during this, um, you know, now it's been, you know, more than a month of uh, bombing and destruction, we actually achieved something. We've actually destroyed Hamas. Uh, infrastructure. We killed all these Hamas leaders, and we've named this. This leader has, is now dead. But Israel isn't able to show any of that. So yeah. that's going to be raised the question: Well, what the hell are you doing? What What's your strategy here? I mean, we we see the the dead civilians, we see the the destroyed homes, but we don't see any um, military objectives uh, uh, that you have achieved. And just simply saying, "Oh, anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic." I mean, that, that's just not, that's not buying anything. Yeah. Also, I think the generational divides too, you just can't really shame people with the Holocaust narrative any longer because so many of these people, that's like such a like distant, it almost feels like ancient history that's like distant to them. And that's why you've seen a lot of these state governments, man, they're 
like like DeSantis, for example, they're pushing all these like really like draconian like anti free speech measures to like combat like anti so called anti semitism, which really is just like um a cover for outlawing, in my opinion, any dissenting views with regards to the U.S.'s relationship with Israel. Th- these people are like definitely desperate, and I would add another point too. Even in the conservative sphere now, uh, I'm not sure if you've been keeping up with like the Daily Wire civil war now where Candace Owens is like taking a much more like neutral line on uh, the Israeli conflict um, that which is angered likes of like Ben Shapiro. And even like these guys like Matt Walsh, they're sounding more and more like non-interventionist on the issue. If you were to tell me that like in 2015 or 2016, I would have called you crazy. Like that, these guys would be making taking those type of positions. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, it is true that um, many on the right who had been taking a um, a sensible position on Ukraine during the past year have um, reemerged as um, as hawks, as the kind of neocon hawks on the subject of uh, Israel. And, uh, and so, you know, while, you know, so no, no, no money for Ukraine, but they seem to be happy with, um, money for Israel. And, you know, those, you know, there are those people on the right. And then similarly, the, those are the people on the right who are in favor of, uh, cracking down on free speech, where just, uh, a few months ago, uh, they were, you know, screaming that, like, no, no, the left is, you know, cracking down on free speech. The left doesn't believe in free speech. You know, universities are the place of exchanging ideas. Universities are a place where uh, people are challenged by ideas and we can't have any notion of safe spaces in universities. You know, you you know, you have to put on your um, big boy pants and um, accept that there are alternative viewpoints and that, you know, you, you, you're going to have to live with that. So suddenly they've turned around and are in favor of uh, uh, suppressing speech in university is speech that is uh, critical of Israel. So you've had that phenomenon. But, you know, there have been voices on the right, but particularly Candace Owens, who haven't gone along with that, who have been consistent. You know, they were consistent, they are consistent in opposing uh, US intervention in uh, Ukraine, supporting uh, Zelensky. And they're opposed to um, US intervention in Israel. It's actually, hey, this is a war involving another country. What has it got to do with the uh, United States? So, so there are people who are consistent and just pre- precisely, hey, you know, these are other countries. Uh, we Americans attend to our own domestic needs. God knows there are many of those instead of worrying about the security of another country. So that it's surprising uh, or perhaps not so surprising, but it's notable that uh, there aren't more voices who are consistent. I mean, that's all one wants, you know, consistency. You know, you don't want to... Uh, worry about um, uh, Ukraine at the expense of um, your own you know, security concerns. But same thing goes for Israel. Israel is a different country. It's not a part of the United States. And you know, there's no reason at all for the United States in any way to get itself involved in such a heavy-handed and a dangerous way on behalf of Israel. Because, of course, the United States is now quite heavily involved and could well be subjected to terrorist attacks. In fact, it's almost certainly the case since pretty much everyone in the Middle East knows that, you know, whatever Israel does, it does because it has the United States in its corner. So they all know that it's the United States that effectively they're fighting 
not Israel. And so therefore the United States becomes uh, vulnerable to future terrorist attacks since they're the ones who are, who are really behind uh, whatever's happening to the Palestinians. So it's, it's notable that this, this point, this obvious point is ignored by conservatives who just 10 minutes ago uh, were making you know, very sensible points that, hey, what, what goes on in Ukraine, the eastern border of Ukraine, has nothing to do with the United States. The United States should be attending to its own border, not the border of Ukraine. Now suddenly they've turned around and said, oh, no, you know, you know, an attack on Israel is an attack on the United States. Yeah, that's actually one thing that has been relatively consistent in the post Cold War era in Republican Party politics that all factions of the party, with like the very few exceptions of like that emerged like Pat Buchanan or Ron Paul or or right now Thomas Massey, that all these factions are unified on the Israel question. And I imagine that the Likud and um other that other conglomeration of right wing parties in Israel have probably just ascertain that, yeah, the way to maintain a strong Zionist influence in D.C. is to probably stack the deck in your favor of I, um, lobbying harder the GOP now. But if you look at like the content creators and younger people in the GOP, <laughs> it's not as monolithic. And there's a lot of people like... You've got some really edgy voices. I'm not going to name names and all that. But you've got edgy voices here that are really going after Israel. And even like some of these like pop culture spaces that um, give platforms to like the online right, the dissident right, and that whole conglomeration of um, unconventional right wing figures, um, which just shows that like these guys are starting to kind of um, lose even influence among younger right-wingers. But that said, um, policy-wise, GOP, I think, is still very much in the tank for Israel. And this leads to another point, too. This conflict has been like this absolute catnip for this like fanatic subsect of neoconservatism that's like insanely hawkish towards um, Iran. Uh, it, it's like astounding. Like they are just using it to um, justify like every like Hamas move under the sun is also like by extension a move that's coming directly from Tehran. Yeah, no, no, that, that's that's exactly right, and and that is uh, obviously true of Trump. You know, and, and this is the one consistent um, theme through the Trump years from his first emergence in 2015 to the present, an obsessive hatred for Iran. I'm not sure where that comes from, to be honest. I mean, at, at least in Trump's case. I mean, in terms of the, um, the U.S. policymaking elite, I mean, that it's obviously still smarting over the loss of the Shah. You know, that goes back to 1978, yeah. so that's you know, now 45 years ago. But ultimately, they still can't get over the loss of this... Uh, key asset in um, Southwest uh, Asia of uh, Iran. I mean, they saw Iran as the bulwark of the United States. It's, there it is. It's, you know, it's, it's there uh, to threaten the Soviet, back Soviet Union then, but it would have been obviously a threat to uh, Russia. They would have seen it into the key uh, player in the Gulf. And losing that was a blow. And I think, you know, U.S. policymakers still dream that somehow 
you know, the Pahlavi dynasty will come back and rule Iran again. Or if that doesn't happen, then maybe they can somehow uh, facilitate the disintegration of uh, Iran. So when Trump assassinated um, General Soleimani, a totally irrational act because Soleimani was, you know, <laughs> America's side in the fight against ISIS. But when yeah. he did, oh, I told, oh, oh man. Yeah, that, that's a whole other can of worms you, you open there. Yeah, I tell this to people like, you know, to just go off on a rant, like sidetrack. But like, I tell this to people that like, if you're like obsessed with undermining like Sunni Islamist terrorists, which are the bulk of um the perpetrators of like the bulk of attacks that you see not only in the Middle East but also in the collective West and these terror cells, you want like a relatively strong Iran in the Middle East to get rid of that threat. And I also argue the same with Russia with, with respect to like the um, dealing with the transnational Islamist networks that have been concentrated in the caucus before. But yeah, continue. Yeah, continue. That, that's right. But it was one of the few things that Trump did that engendered support um, among U.S. policymaking elites. So they said, oh, great. You know, they, they didn't criticize at all an assassination. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. The United States simply murdered a kind of a whatever political military intelligence leader of another power, just simply a cold-blooded murder, and and generally, you know, you know, you know, Washington was was pretty happy, pretty satisfied. They were only unhappy when he said nice things about uh, you know adversary leaders. If he said something nice about um, uh, North Korea's leadership, then after Washington was in oh, Hezbollah. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My, exactly. Like more recently, like Hezbollah, he said, you know, he said, all he said was they're tough and smart. And my God, you know, there was just an explosion. Heads were exploding. How could yeah, you say? Especially the Santa's crowd. Oh God. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's right. So the, this obsession with Iran is indeed, I mean, it, it, it's a, a, a bipartisan uh, thing. And um, and I think I think it is clearly driven by Israel. Israel is also uh, obsessed with Iran. I mean, I remember when uh, how many times has Netanyahu said, you know, Iran is you know ten minutes from having uh, yeah. uh, nuclear weapons, and then when he came to uh, Washington and openly campaigned against um, the, the signing of the the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I mean, just an extraordinary. Uh, intervention in U.S. politics, uh, so, so it comes from Israel, but it also comes from uh, this this fury and the frustration that we lost Iran. But so yeah, and, and Trump plays into that. And again, one's you know one's always hoped in the past, well maybe Trump will break out of the policymaking elites thinking he's an outsider and so on. But I wouldn't hold my breath. I mean, you know, it, it, in many ways he's still the one hope because he's the one person who is anywhere near power, who thinks differently. I mean, you talk about Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, but neither of them has any real chance of um, getting to the presidency. Trump has, but with him, it's a crapshoot. You have no idea which way he's going to go. Yeah. So I think it's going to be interesting to see once the dust settles from the Trump, quote-unquote, Trump era of politics, to see what's revealed in these memoirs and just overall historical di documentation of what went down. Because my vague suspicion has been that Trump's um, hatred of Iran may be something that was part of like a um, pact that of the, with the devil that he made with the likes of um, 
the uh, the late Sheldon Adelson and that consortium of like really pro Zionist donors that yes. were probably on the fence about uh, with Trump in 2016, but then they probably had some meeting where they did a grand bargain. They said like, okay, we'll support your presidency despite the fact that like we hate your guts and all this, but you got to do us some favors. And one thing, like, um, move like the capital from like Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, yep. assassinate Soleimani, maybe even give us a war. But to flat, uh, to fast forward things a bit, um, one interesting thing I've noticed, um, with the implosion of the DeSantis campaign, which we will also talk about later on, there's a lot of big time donors of his campaign and other anti Trump pro Zionist donors. They're just getting behind Trump now. Uh, that's one thing I, I'm starting to see as well. And even like political figures, because they see where like the wind is blowing. And to me, that does not augur well um, for like any type of like America first type of foreign policy. Like you might see some concessions with like Russia or whatever, but I think they're going to really double down on the Iran thing. My fear is that they're going to use a lot of these bs indictments and all that as a way to like force trump to say like hey we won't like defend you against these indictments if you don't like select like some like neocon as your running mate or um or start staffing people um in the administration that are also like neocon types as well and i i just feel that when you look at the gop and we're really both parties they're run by all these like this like consortium of like donors and NGOs to the point where any type of like quote unquote outsider that ins um, insinuates themselves in power will not be able to implement his contrarian agenda once they're in office because there's just so much inertia brought about by these donors and there's also a lot of this arm twisting and jawboning that forces otherwise uh, outsider candidates to just become like a glorified version of the establishment. No, I think that's right. I, and I think the uh, greatest threat uh, now is the various people who have now battened on to um, Trump. Now, if we're hoping for some sort of a um, change in uh, foreign policy from Trump, well, we're not going to get it if he's got somebody like uh, Lindsey Graham in his corner. And Lindsey Graham has been an ardent uh, supporter of Trump. I mean, you know, Trump goes uh, campaigning and there's Lindsey Graham popping up and speaking on uh, Trump's behalf. That's very bad because it means that should Trump uh, actually um, be elected and uh, assume office, and I think that's still very much up in the air, um, you know, <laughs> he's got so many hurdles so many roadblocks ahead of him that it, it, it's very much up in the air. But if, if that happens, I, you know, Lindsey Graham and many others are going to want some, something from him. They're going to, you know, they say, you know, we yeah. went out of our way. There's no free lunch. Exactly. You know, we, we, we you know, we, we did this for you. We saved you. Now we want, um, uh, something in return. And, you know, keep in mind, this is more or less what happened. In during the waning days of his uh, presidency, when it was very much up in the air as to whether Trump will pardon uh, Julian Assange. And I think Trump was uh, on, on the brink of pardoning Julian Assange. But lo and behold, out of the blue, he was being impeached. And um, once he was being impeached, and, and once he knew 100% of the Democrats 
would vote to uh, uh, convict him in the Senate. And he, he needed those Republican votes because he also knew that, um, you know, the, the, the Republicans will blow his, like, you know, Mitt Romney and the woman in Alaska, I always forget her name, uh, and, 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 and the rest of them who were bound to vote to convict. Well, if he lost just a few votes, he'd be out. And he would never be able to run uh, for office again. He'd also be liable for uh, prosecution. So he needed Lindsey Graham. And if he had pardoned um, Julian Assange, he would certainly have lost Lindsey Graham and others. He would have been convicted. And so Graham yeah. does rely on, on these people, horrible people as they are, uh, because he just doesn't, there, there really isn't a America first um, majority in Congress, I mean, you know, we got he yeah, has supporters. Yeah, he, he, the, the, by and large, the Republicans uh, in in the Senate and in the House are very much traditionalist, interventionist, um, neocon, whatever one was to call it, Republicans, and they they're not on board for uh, Trump's foreign policy, and he needs them because he's <laughs> well, if he were to be. Um, to assume office, we know the Democrats would move to impeach him in no time at all. I mean, that well, it, that would be a given. And so if he were to change policy, heaven forbid, change policy on Israel, I mean, you know, he, he would have, you know, at least 20 uh, Republican senators who would vote to convict him. So, he, you know, he, he has to toe the line, I mean, to, just to survive. Yeah, that's what I've told people over the years, having worked in the Republican space, and all of that previously, that you basically have to have at least like a third of Congress in aggregate of the House and Senate made up of like some like replica of Thomas Massey to have like a uh, like a semblance of political powers where you can like scuttle bills and actually start using leverage and horse training to roll back kind of this stuff or build such a powerful lobby that can like push some republicans that are on on that could be squishy on foreign policy issues into a more like i'd say like realist direction but that's not really even present at all in dc or even like in the think tank space whatsoever so you're just gonna see more of the same it's just yeah it's just a brutal and it's game yeah and exactly and it's a problem when even uh, reliable, seemingly reliable Trumpians like um, uh, Josh Hawley have now become a fervent buster. Uh, oh, so, you know, he, it's not just, you know, he has to worry about Lindsey Graham, but if he has to worry about Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, then, you know, even he, Matt Gates, man. Yeah, even Matt Gates, exactly. Even Matt Gates on the subject seemed to be happy to get the United States directly involved in the fighting. On behalf of Israel, so Matt Gates was kind of happy to, you know, then when Biden sent in his um, um, aircraft, uh, the aircraft carrier group into the Eastern Mediterranean. Oh, great! We we need to be threatening Iran. So again, I thought, hey, I thought, man, you were an, you were an America first. I thought you were a non-interventionist, but no. When it comes to Israel, you know, suddenly Matt Gates is on board with, well, let's let's you know threaten Iran. So. There's a very limited maneuver, maneuver room for uh, for any president now. Yeah, um, going back to Gates, it's actually kind of crazy. I vividly remember during the Soleimani assassination, he was one of the only 
Republicans that like really condemned that move. He was like trying to get Trump to show restraint and he got like forced by um, conservative media. He was able to brush that to the side, but it really does seem, I know that he was bankrolled by a very prominent Zionist donor as well. And he may, after that incident, I think he may have had a little talking to about how things are supposed to work in DC and he was probably put in line and like now is towing um the line on that with regards to Israel. He was good on Ukraine, but yeah, it's just uh, emblematic of our times. No, I think it's true. And I think so that was early 2020. And then, 20, yeah. Yeah. So, but, and then suddenly out of nowhere, that whole scandal came up with the DOJ investigating him. And, um, you know, he got it, he was facing very serious problems. So again, I think. That must have been the chastening experience. I mean, I don't, I don't know much about it, but I mean, it's a, it, it's very interesting yeah. that something came up, which means he knows that something like this could again come up. You know, who knows? You know, what else? What else? If the uh, you know the DOJ has up its sleeve that he can just simply trot out. Oh, we're investigating Matt Gates for that as well. So I think that may have contributed to his now falling in line on on uh, on this issue. Yeah, I also think. Gates, he um he's a bomb thrower. And the thing is, when you're a bomb thrower in politics, you open yourself up to multiple types of attack vectors. Because he pisses off a lot of people with his whole like speaker thing too. That he's definitely not gonna be liked by a lot of people in DC now. And he's just opening himself to attack. Because if you contrast that to Thomas Massey, when you look at Thomas Massey, it's actually quite impressive. He's had like full-fledged assaults from like the Republican Jewish coalition and all these other Zionist groups trying to primary him. And he just completely smashes them. Even people forget this too. During COVID, Trump ripped Massey a new one about like his move to like halt that uh, Wuhan virus spending bill. And Massey, like, did not get dented because, generally speaking, um, Trump has a superhuman power of, like, if he, like, lambasts a Republican ahead of, like, an election or whatever or during, like, an election cycle, like, that, that's, like, the kiss of death for them. Just look at, like, um, Jeff Sessions, for example. Right. But, yeah, that's actually kind of impressive, but it's basically an outlier in the grand scheme of things. Right, but at the same time, um, there have been Republicans who have defied Trump and have uh, and have thrived. I mean, Brian Kemp, the yeah. Georgia governor, Trump attacked him because I think Brian Kemp was one of the was a governor who ended the lockdowns, I think, at a very early stage. And Trump was then a proponent of lockdowns. You know, he was, you know, he was following, you know, the lead of um, Fauci and that woman. And he attacked, I remember he was in public, he attacked Brian Kemp. I'm very unhappy with what Brian Kemp is doing. And this animus has gone on with, with Kemp. And then, of course, everything about the, uh, the 2020 election. And, and then Kemp clearly did not support Trump and did, did nothing to uh, further Trump's uh, attempts to challenge the Georgia result. And then Kemp was reelected um, uh, yeah. quite handsomely. So... It's true that governors have their own power base, and it's a little hard to um, to challenge governors. But there are those who who can defy Trump and uh, and thrive. I mean, I, I'm I'm no fan of Brian Kemp to say the least. I mean, he's he's very much a, a Davos like creature. But 
Yeah. But I have to say, you know, he managed to um, weather the attack on him from Trump. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's going to be interesting to see how um, uh, things start shaping up within the Republican Party, because I do think it's <laughs> more like it's more or less more of the same. It just has a bit of like a populist cosmetic sprinkled in there a bit. Let's go to Russia, because that's been like almost like become yesterday's news in light of like the Hamas conflict. It seems like the media is now throwing the Zelensky regime under the bus and you're starting to see like talks of like trying to like hammer out some type of like frozen conflict settlement. Not obviously not like a peace treaty or any of that because I don't think that's even on the cards, but it does seem to me that there's um a reality that's dawning upon the political class in DC that this Russia Ukraine venture isn't going out the way it planned. Where do you think things are going to go in that respect? Well, yeah, this is where it, I, I kind of differ a little from the um, consensus because, as I see it, the Americans have every interest in keeping this war going. They don't care about Ukrainian lives. They don't care about how many Ukrainian lives they're ready to sacrifice. But for them, for the Americans, this is a pretty good deal. Uh, it, you know, it keeps the military industrial complex humming because, you know, constant government orders for uh, building new weapons. It kills a lot of Russians, which the Americans will call a good thing. It also kills a lot of uh, Ukrainians, but that means that a lot of Slavs are dying, which again is no great tragedy for the United States. But above all, no Americans are dying. And that's that's so that they're saying, well, we are achieving our objective, which is to weaken Russia to um, induce a, uh, a maybe a political crisis in Russia at relatively little expense to us. So you know, you know, NATO looks around and said, "Well, no NATO lives are being lost; uh, only Russian lives are being lost. So what's the problem? Why not go on?" Well, the one problem is, can Ukraine continue? And and that there, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, you know. I'm, you know, I'm constantly reading stories, just as you are, about how Ukraine is on its last legs, that doesn't have any manpower, and, and and so on. And that may be true. On the other hand, I've been hearing that for a long time. And Ukraine still seems to put some manpower in the field, yeah. giving Russia great difficulties. I mean, Russia's still fighting to capture Avdivka, and maybe they will. Maybe that, that will succeed, but it's certainly they're able to fend off the Russians and have been for uh, several months now. And again, same with um, Bakhmut. I mean, eventually Russia took Bakhmut, but to no real purpose. I mean, it was kind of a, a lot of lives were lost, but no, no great strategic objective was attained. And Zelensky does a, an important uh, job for the United States because he's Jewish. And that undercuts uh, Russia's claim that this is a Nazi regime. Now, you know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I don't think it does undercut it. But as far as the public is concerned, you know, the media will say, no, how can it, you know, Ukraine possibly be Nazi? Zelensky is Jewish. If you want to get rid of Zelensky, then you have somebody who's not Jewish. And so therefore the, the argument that is Jewish, that uh, the Ukraine regime, the Kiev regime is Nazi would at least have a little more plausibility. So I think for the Americans, you know, there's no problem. You know, they're, they're, they're quite happy with Zelensky as long as Ukraine doesn't collapse, and and maybe it will. I mean, I, I, you know, it's hard to tell. But as as long as it doesn't collapse, 
then the Americans will want to keep this war going. So to use the young people's parlance, I'm kind of black-pilled in general that I think that there's a pretty big network of just these whack job billionaires, whether you go from like the likes of like the Soros network to um just your average like DNC donor that will easily that would more than gladly bankroll some like black operations even after like some type of settlement is reached formal or informal over the Ukraine to perpetuate some type of dirty war against Russia and Ukraine and whatever territories it conquers for like decades on end. There's just there's a lot of like just crazy people out here from like NAFO or these like Reddit here live action role players that would gladly sign up to become like mercenaries for this cause. And whether it's like all the way from like the US to Europe to do that, to continue this conflict in perpetuity, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that that's why it's very hard to see how it can end because uh, for the United States to urge uh, Kiev to sign some kind of an agreement would mean that the United States would force Kiev to um, accept the loss of territory. That will obviously be seen to be a defeat for Ukraine. Obviously, but oh, who can talk about that? But it, look, it would seem to be a big defeat for NATO. And so I can't see the United States doing this. I mean, you know, because again, hey, this would be a humiliation for the United States. But the same, the same applies uh, for Russia, because if Russia were to accept an agreement in which, okay, it takes some additional territory. Uh, you know, we got, you know, oh, yeah, we, we've got the Donbass, we've got Kherson, we've got Zaporozhye, but everything else remains in the hands of Kiev. Everything, particularly this regime, this rabid regime in Kiev, they keep um, Kharkov, they keep Odessa, and we know that this regime will immediately be armed to the teeth yet again by um, NATO, that would also be a defeat for Russia. So I don't see any incentive on either side to sign any kind of an agreement. Uh, yeah. If either side, it'll be a defeat. I mean, that agreement for like the Russian terms of like they just um accept like Kherson, Saporozhye, uh, Donbass. In my opinion, that type of agreement, if that's like etched, that's at best like prolonging another conflict. Right. Um, at best, like it, it, it's just like a recipe for like another war to break out like twenty years from now. To be honest, yeah, like, see, I think even less than twenty years. I think it's yeah. be recommend. We know exactly how NATO would operate. NATO would immediately move in and start arming Ukraine to the teeth. You know, just you know, it'll it'll be you know like the next day already. The arms will be shipping in. So. There'll be a new conflict within five years. And I think that the yeah. Russian public will turn around and say, well, what the hell did we sacrifice? Because Russia has sacrificed the greater. What, what, you know, so many young men are now dead. For what? What have you achieved? You know, you've got another war in five years. And I think the public will then really turn against the government. I mean, you know, that, you know, you've, you've achieved nothing. I mean, you've, you've basically lost so many, uh, young men, a country like Russia. It cannot afford to lose men. It's a, it already has a serious demographic uh, problem. So you lost all that. And what have you gained? You know, we've got another war, you know, in five years' time. So, you know, I, I just, I, I can't see how the Russian government can possibly accept anything uh, like that. 
Oh, even like, let's say like in some hypothetical, Russia takes Kharkov and Odessa. Um, I think like the, uh, like the capture of Odessa, not only is like militarily like important, but um, economically, it would be such a blow for Ukraine. It turns it into like basically like a failed, like almost landlocked rump state. Yes. Even then, when, when that turns into a failed state, that's where like my whole black ops scenario comes into play because there'll be like plenty of like Western money coming in to like, not only bring in like what um crazy Western mercenaries, but also like even like freaking jihadists and all that stuff in to create like a, a dirty war type of conflict that'll be very partisan in nature. So there's really like no good options for Russia here. Um, no, no, I, I agree, and I think that this would be NATO's strategy. NATO's strategy is let's bleed Russia dry. That's all they want to do. Let's bleed Russia dry. They know Ukraine can't win this war. I mean, they, they, they're not stupid. They know Ukraine. Yeah. They, have the resources. You know, it's a, Russia's, you know, four or five times its size. It has a huge industry. It has resources. Ukraine cannot win it. But what Ukraine can do is bleed Russia uh, and weaken Russia and undercut Russia's pretensions to be a great power. That's all uh, the United States is trying to do. The, so I, these analogies with um, DM in South Vietnam always fail. I know people always bring that up. Oh, the Americans pushed out DM. You know, that's what they're going to do with Zelensky. But there was a reason why they pushed out DM. DM was not really enthusiastic about keeping the war going. I mean, he was making moves to come to some kind of an agreement with Ho Chi Minh. That's why the Americans pushed him out. They didn't want any kind of a, uh, an agreement in Vietnam. They didn't want Diem signing any sort of a deal with uh, Ho Chi Minh. They pushed him out in favor of the military who were happy to go along with the fighting and keep the fighting going. That's why it makes no sense for the Americans to push out Zelensky unless Zelensky were make giving indications that he wanted to sign a deal with the Russians. But there's no, you know, I, I don't see any evidence that Zelensky wants to go down that path. On the contrary, he sounds more unhinged and belligerent every day. Yeah, I, I just, this is just like Slav on Slav violence. And um, th and it's this is like catnip and almost like a, a twisted, like, revenge fantasy for certain um, interventionist types that um still think that, like, Russia is like some um, spinning image of like czarist Russia of like the 1880s and 90s that's about to commit like a pogrom. Like this is like music to the ears of these people because they're just like really demented. They um they do use like foreign policy as a way to air out like their ancient like ethnic grievances. So yeah, it is like a win, not so much for like a formal government apparatus, but really these like informal like transnational networks of people that are just like obsessed with. Dishing out blows to whichever country that's like the monster of the week, whether it's like Russia, Iran, or whatever. I no, I I think that's right, and I think that what the Americans have done very successfully is um, used the kind of uh, anti-Russian animus that exists in in much of Eastern Europe, in you know some of the uh, re former republics of the Soviet Union, use that in order to kind of mobilize kind of NATO uh, against um, Russia. And so they can play on this, uh, this kind of ancient resentments. You know, you know, you have a younger generation that have no memory of the Soviet Union, and even the Soviet Union that they remember was actually 
not not that terrible. I mean, it wasn't the Stalin Soviet Union. Uh, you know, the Brezhnev Soviet Union wasn't wasn't so horrible. But they can use this all the kind of ancient anger and frustrations and and uh, and kind of xenophobia and racism of, of the Baltic states of po- the Poles and even among the Czechs. And this has meant that NATO has become much more cohesive and totally under the domination of the United States. And that has been an achievement. I mean, the Americans have achieved that at relatively little expense. I mean, America has plenty of money to burn. I mean, it has trillions to burn. You know, they, you know, sort of trillion here, a couple of trillion there. It's pretty cheap uh, as long as Americans are not dying. And so that's why this is, a, you know, why, why would they want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg? And I think that's um, how the United States, and essentially any possibility of uh, reconciliation between Russia and Europe is now out of the window. It's not going to happen now in, you know, generation or two generations. Again, a success for the United States, not to mention how devastating this has been to the European economy. Again, and, you know, uh, which has been exploited by the United States. So it's a kind of mission accomplished. And that's why I just went all of these stories about how Russia, that the United States is, wants to bring this to an end. It just makes no sense. I mean, there's no, by any, by any, any logic, it doesn't make any sense. And, and no one ever comes up with any evidence for this. You know, people talk about this article in NBC. It's always, there's always some one article that everybody keeps referring to because this article un- unsourced talking with a-, a former U.S. official and a current U.S. official who, of course, are anonymous and, and uh, speaking off the record. And then, you know, and then you have this vast superstructure of interpretation um, that's been built on that about how the, um, the United States is somehow pushing Ukraine to come to a settlement when it makes no sense for the United States push for a settlement that will be seen to be a defeat for the United States. So I just don't, I, I, you know, I, you know, I, I just, I'm just skeptical of, of all of these uh, stories and particular, these are sort of bloggers and, you know, who, you know, who comment on these affairs, you know, they, 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 they always cling to these things. Just as last January, we had, we had the meeting between um, CIA chief uh, Burns and uh, the Russian Russian intelligence chief, uh, name, name escapes me for the moment. Um, and and there was an again vast superstructure of interpretation about this meeting. Oh, that, this is it. This is going to be it. You know, the United States about to push Ukraine under the bus. That was in January. It never happened. So I just don't see it unless Ukraine is on the brink of collapse. But I so far I haven't seen uh, that that's happening. I mean, maybe it is on the brink of collapse, but it, it seems to be. Pretty competent at continuing the fight. Yeah, for sure. Now let's um to cap things off here because we're um approaching um the top of the hour. But um I want to touch upon the domestic situation in the US, especially the presidential election, which is a total shit show for lack of a better word. Um, it's become like abundantly clear in my view that Donald Trump is the prohibited favorite for the 2024 election. I've been saying this for a while now. Uh, I never bought into like the Trumpism after Trump meme that's mm-hmm. uh, emerged among some factions of the online right that's been mm-hmm. talking about like the Santis is a credible challenger and all of mm-hmm. that. Now, one thing that is interesting, I wasn't that bullish on Trump's prospects initially of potentially 
defeating Biden. But in light of this Israel-Hamas conflict, I've changed my tune because it's becoming clear that a lot of Democrats, they've been kind of like demoralized in a way. They, um, by the way he's handled the Israel conflict and just the growing pro-Palestinian base within the Democratic Party. I get the feeling that some of these, a good portion of these people may sit out this election um, altogether. Um, what are your thoughts about things going on in the Republican Party and Trump's chances in 2024? I agree. I mean, I think the whole idea that you can have Trumpism without Trump never made much sense to me because... Um, why would you want Trumpism without Trump when you've got Trump? I mean, if Trump wasn't running, then you can say, okay, well, let's have Trumpism without Trump. But why would somebody want a pale imitation of the real thing when you can have the real thing? And that's why the rationale for a, a DeSantis candidacy never never made any sense. And I think that's why basically it uh, collapsed. There's just no no reason for his candidacy. I mean, if he's just going to pursue Trumpian policies, then let's have Trump pursuing Trumpian policies. So, yeah. so I, I think that's understandable. And uh, I mean, th there is a rationale for something like a Nikki Haley. There's always going to be somebody who would emerge as the neocon uh, incarnate, you know, the one who wants to go to war with, you know, as, as many powers as possible. You know, can we, can we get a war with Iran, North Korea, China, and Russia at the same time, please? I mean, that, that's more or less her uh, position. It was inevitable there would be somebody like that. And I imagine um, that in the primaries, she will be his main opponent. I mean, I think he's going he's gonna to get the nomination, but I imagine that... Um, in one primary after another, it'll be, you know, Trump versus uh, Haley. I mean, that's how it usually boils down to. It's always one versus another. It's between two uh, candidates, just like in 2016, it was Trump versus uh, Ted Cruz. So I think, I think it'll be uh, Trump versus Haley. And so DeSantis will just fade away. And I think he'll drop out early because I don't think he wants to be humiliated in his own state. And he's going to get absolutely clobbered in his own state. That, that's, that's, a, that's not a good look uh, for somebody who has a any hope for a, a, a political future. On the other point about the, the Democrats, I, I, I agree. I think the Democrats are in a lot, lot of trouble. I mean, you have the, the political activists who are very unhappy with um, what Biden's doing. I mean, they didn't really mind about Russia and Ukraine. They were quite, quite happy with that. You know, basically it's, um, you know, let Biden, you know, give everything to Ukraine and, you know, and, and they bought into the whole nonsense that Ukraine is just this plucky little country picked on by big bad Russia. So they were they were happy with that. But here, you know, you had Biden rushing over to Israel, hugging Netanyahu, and then Netanyahu unleashes this horror on civilians. I mean, they just say, you know, you're just killing civilians. I mean, you know, you keep you keep saying you're destroying military targets. I mean, where are the military targets? So uh, that's going to hurt Biden. The one caveat that um you know i i would posit is what happens let's say next summer when this war will be over and then the democrats do their usual thing which is hey if you don't show up if you don't vote for biden you know what's going to happen the orange man the horrible terrible uh orange man will or george floyd incident I, I think too is something to not um discount like some type of like race related like BS popping up in the US. Yeah. 
Exactly. Exactly. Some, something like in, in 2020 with the whole George Floyd thing and then uh, Black Lives Matter. And then, you know, we saw what happened, which is the governors, the Democrat governors sat on their hands and were happy to see violence in the streets, which would then be blamed on Trump. However, you know, ridiculous. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, with, the, with the president, what's it got to do with the president? But nonetheless, Trump got blamed for it. Hey, it's on, it's on your watch. Uh, it, it, therefore, it's uh, it's your responsibility. So that absolutely that that could could well happen. And look, I mean, the Democrats are masters of uh, of cheating. I mean, they 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 practiced this for for centuries, and uh, and they're already getting set for, for for stealing the election. I mean, so you know, yeah, you know, no, it's, yeah, because according to polls, Trump seems to be leading in the. Um, the battleground states, but it's still quite a narrow lead. It's still, you know, within striking distance. So therefore, those states are going to be vulnerable. I mean, all, all the problems that uh, we had in 2020 and even in 2022, they haven't been solved. I mean, all the, the whole thing of um, mail-in ballots, the drop boxes, uh, all, all of those things, they're still there. That kind of uh, electoral shenanigans is possible where Trump doesn't have a decisive lead. You know, <laughs> I think Trump is uh, vulnerable, but I think it's very important to for for the Democrats to do what they always do, which is to whip up fear. You know, this is you know, this is you know. Do you realize that if you don't vote for Biden, if you sit on your hands, you don't show up, you know, Trump will be back. Do you want you know Trump back? Do you want Hitler returning? Uh, yeah, the right stack. You know, so therefore, you know, that, that's a few months down the road. And, you know, the way things work in America, people have quite a short memory. And suddenly what, what we're preoccupied with today with Israel and Hamas, you know, that might all be already be ancient history by next summer. Yeah, very, very true. U.S. is becoming incredibly unstable as well. I think like people really underestimate the institutional instability that's surfacing across the U.S. political system. And I think that's something that cannot be like overstated because of the simple fact that like, I think that the, the U.S. is entering a, it's very own point of no return where a lot of like the acceptance of basic political norms in terms of how elections are run and how politics are being conducted they're changing and it's turning very banana republic tier. So people should definitely watch out and check their priors and premises because some of the stuff that worked in the 20th century is not going to apply for this clown world 21st century of American politics that is going to continue to uh, like worsen decade after decade. I mean, we've got all these um, criminal prosecutions, at least some of them, some may be um, delayed till after the election. I think maybe the the prosecution of Trump in Florida, maybe that'll be scheduled for after the election. But some of them are going to take place before the election. I mean, I think the one in D.C. by a very politically uh, biased, motivated uh, judge, is Judge Tanya Chutka, she's going to make sure that this trial takes place before the election. So, you know, that all, of, and I think given given her, uh, given the um, the jury pool in D.C., I think it could well result in a conviction for Trump. You know, what the consequence of that will be, you know, it's hard to say, but it, but it does show the, uh, the, the growing kind of instability 
in the United States, which is the, you know, this is the kind of thing that would have been un unthinkable in, in many a long year of a, uh, a president putting on trial his, uh, his opponent. But it's happening now. And um, how that's going to play out, I mean, God knows, but not, not, not well. That's, we know that. Oh, big time. Well, I think it's a good place to put a bookmark in this conversation, George. But as always, I had a pleasure talking with you because you have like one of like the sharpest like political instincts I've seen of people in the online uh, geopolitics and even like domestic politics space. So thank you again for coming on. Before you leave, make sure to tell my audience where they can find um, your latest content and updates. Right. So please uh, visit um, thegaggle.locals.com. That's um, a platform on uh, Locals where uh, Peter Lavelle, my um, partner, and I do almost daily uh, videos. I also do uh, live streaming twice a week. So you can you know, just go to thegaggle.locals.com, follow me there. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, just under my name, and you can follow me on uh, Substack. So that, those are the best places to find me. Fantastic. Well, again, to my audience, thank you for tuning in to El Nino Speaks. And with that, El Nino has spoken.